I used to think about running away a lot when I was a kid. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Did I ever try to run away from home? You know, I would say yes, I did, and I actually would say that I have ultimately succeeded. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio treats we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and play you the best of what we hear each week. And I was like, we just need to run away. This, I don't want to live in this house anymore. And I was fed up, and I was had enough, and I was leaving home. And I was like, screw this, I'm leaving. I'm out of here, this is garbage. I ran away naked to the neighbor's house across the street and was found in their pantry eating cookies. The neighbor came down and just was surprised, I think and a little delighted, to see a naked two-year-old me eating cookies in her pantry. Kids are always on the move. They start squirming before they're even born. Then they're up and crawling and skipping and trotting and running away at full gallop. They get going, and the next thing you know, they get away. Today on ReSound, little feet, always moving, mostly away from you. Sometimes by design, but not always. Stay with us. What kid doesn't love an adventure? You know, scavenging through alleys, trying to nick a candy bar, venturing far afield, right? Well, there's far afield, as in one neighborhood over, and then there's a kind of far afield that makes international headlines. And that's the kind of adventure in our first story. It starts in Ireland and ends, well, you're just going to have to listen to Don't Go Far. Dinner's almost ready. Dublin, August 1985. Two Dubliners on the dart. This is the new suburban rail system. Just opened. It has changed their lives. They could now venture far afield from their home in Darndale, North Dublin. We used to always get on the dart and go out to Bray and go out to Dunleary and so these are all kind of new places. So we just, and then we realised that the, there was a boat, the ferry, that went from Dunleary to, over to England. So that was an extended version of the adventure, if you, if you like. We went over a couple of times. Like, we used to do this kind of on a regular thing. We'd go over to Punk on the ferry over to England and then go from there, jump on a train or a coach or whatever, and going on an adventure. That's Keith Byrne, talking about heading off with a couple of friends. But that's Keith Byrne now. In 1985, when he was getting the dart to Dunleary and sneaking on the ferry to England, Keith was 10. We'd gone to Pueli in um, the holiday camp like Butlins and Pontins and Blackpool, I think, as well. We, we meant it as well. So, Keith Byrne, age 10, and his friend Noel Murray, age 13, are sitting on the dart train into town. But the town they're heading for isn't Dublin. In fact, it isn't even in Ireland. Keith and Noel's final destination is so far away 
and the story of their epic journey there causes such a fuss that within a couple of days, these two boys sitting on a Dublin train in August 1985 will become front page news. This is Morning Ireland. It's a quarter past eight. The news headlines. Two Dublin boys... The news headlines. Two Dublin boys, aged 10 and 13, have been returned to Ireland after stowing... The boys, 13-year-old Noel Murray and 10-year-old Keith Byrne, are now back home. None the worse for their adventure. Welcome back. And first today, that amazing journey by two young stowaways from Dublin. Noel Murray and Keith Byrne... First Was there many people at the gate checking for tickets and that? Yeah, good few. And did any of them stop you? Yeah, but we just said we must come with the tickets. We must come with the tickets. And they believe that? The day of Keith's adventure began quietly enough. We were kind of just hanging around the, our local area, basically. We had Noel just knocked in for me into my house. My mum had asked me to go around and get some potatoes in the shop. I'd brought them back. My mum says, don't go far, your dinner's nearly ready or whatever. And I says, I won't, I was in the garden. And, and then we just says, let's go out to Dunleary and it kicked off from there. I was born and bred in Dublin, reared in Cabra, and then we moved to Drumcondra for a couple of months, and then we eventually moved out to Belcamp 26 years ago. Keith's school life was unsettled too. In 1985, at the time of this story, he was in St Joseph's Industrial School in Clonmel. I was basically triumphing from school, not going to school, and acting the agent and whatever else, so I was sent down there for me since. We were very, very streetwise for our age, you know, kind of like when we were living in Drunkhondra, I was only around seven years of age, eight years of age, and my mum used to have to collect our money up in Cabra because she, she had young kids, she couldn't make the journey, and I used to get on the bus. I was only seven, and I, I used to get on the bus, get off the bus at Fisborough and get on the Cabra bus up to Cabra, get off the bus up there, meet me nanny, go to the post office, collect the money and make the journey back. And, you know, I was, like, worried enough to do that at that age and worried enough, I used to put the money in my sock and, you know, like, I was, like, I would have been way ahead of other kids at that stage. Of the, you know, we were quite streetwise, you know. We got off at Black Rock first. We had got some haversacks and tracksuits and things like that. We had shoplifted them in the shopping centre out there. And then got off at Dunleary and then had tried to go on the, the ferry once, got stopped, and then we managed to go on to the next ferry. <laughs> Improving all the time, although we do have a, a fresh westerly wind. Only slight season swell mid channel on the last crossing. And if you could take a few more minutes of your time, please. And 
got over to England then, and then we just waited on the train then. The train went directly from Holyhead to London. And we met some guy on the train who got chatting to him and told him we'd know where to stay for the night and and he, he says you can stay on sleep on my floor for the night and I'll bring us back to the train station and you can do what his want from there the next day. That like London was a dangerous place in the night time and he didn't want to leave us on the streets kind of thing. We stayed in his house for the night and he drove us back to the train station the next morning. is Hatton Cross. Customers for Heathrow Terminal 4 should change across platform at this station for a train to Terminals 4 and 123. This is a Piccadilly line service to Cockfosters. We had gone on the tube. We had seen the sign Heathrow Airport and we just got off there and went up the escalator stairs and we were smack bang in the middle of Heathrow Airport. And we were kind of thinking, oh, we'll fly home. We'll see, can we get on a plane and fly home to Dublin? That was that was our idea at the time. So we kind of come up the escalator and we were smack bang in the middle of this huge place that was nothing like Dublin Airport at all. It was like ten times the size. We were just amazed. There was like a some kind of a fountain thing that you throw money in, like a wishmail thing, and we had taken some money out of that. Microwaves are really so simple, and that's what makes it In the airport, we had found these like lounge chair seats. Where you put a coin in and you can watch a TV screen. Monday, wrote Mr. Kipling, the form of my exceedingly delicious apple pie. Else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A team. We were sitting there for an hour or two just putting money in the machine and sitting there watching the telly and, you know, but that was it. We were just having fun, basically. At one point in the airport, Keith and Noel were spotted by security. The officer thought it was suspicious that two boys, aged 10 and 13 years old, were wandering around the terminal, seemingly alone. It was then the boys came out with a response that was to carry them on much further in their journey. We just says, oh, my mum's coming with the tickets now and the bags and things. So she just says, OK, just wait for your parents. So we just walked and stopped for a minute. And when she wasn't watching, we just kind of legged it off so she didn't see us, like, kind of thing. The same trick got them through the main airport security and into the shopping area. We walked on through, like we just had a little a little carry bag, it was a plastic bag with a few sweets and things like that in it. That was it, basically. They just let us walk through kind of thing when we told them our parents was coming with the tickets. For the two boys, this wasn't so much duty-free as plain old free.
we were walking around all the shops and we were fascinated by all the stuff like and like how easy it was like to just pick things up and like take things up basically you know we got another little rucksack thing and we started taking bits of jewelry like chains and bracelets we took Philly shave and other other kind of little nicky nacky items and things like that and then, like, when we were kind of bored at the shop's part, we kind of started walking in the direction where all the people were walking. And there was there was these flat escalators that move along the ground. And I remember we got on one of them and we just asked the person, the man, where where is this plane going? And he says, New York. And we kind of just looked at each other and says, yeah, we'll go. Finally, they got to the boarding gate and the airline staff checking boarding passes. This would be the end of their adventure. Surely the line about parents lagging behind wouldn't work again. They asked the same question, like, you know, who he is with or whatever, and we just says, oh, their mum's coming, she has the boarding passes, like, and mum and dad is coming, they have the boarding passes. So they just says, OK, go on. They were obviously just busy and they just slipped their mind and we just walked on down the plane and just sat on two seats. And person come down and says, oh, there are their seats. So we just got up and moved back two sets of seats and sat down and the plane was only half full, so no one came near us. There was a, like, there was, I can remember there was a lot, 20, 30 seats around us that was empty. So like we were kind of, would have been a, like a jumbo jet kind of, like they, they hold a lot of people. So there was a lot of seats that were empty. There may have been a good reason a lot of seats were empty. The plane the two boys had wandered onto was an Air India jumbo jet. Two months previously, almost to the day, an Air India jet had blown up off the southwest of Ireland. 329 people had perished. Before we knew it, like, the doors closed on the plane and it was ready to take off. We couldn't believe like that no one had actually copped on to like what we were doing or like these these two kids are sitting on their own and like who's with them or anything like that like and, It wasn't actually till the plane had taken off and was in the air when they were going around with the meals. The air hostess came up to us again and we remember sitting on our own and says, uh, would we like something to eat and where was our parents? And we just says that they were up on the front of the plane and they gave us a curry, calling it an Indian curry, which I can remember was too hot for me, so I didn't take it. I didn't eat it. I just ate the bap that was with it and some water. We were watching the James Bond film on the TV screen. Have security keep a good eye on him. Hmm. Oh, by the way, you didn't say what part of the state you come from, Miss... Uh... No, I didn't. So we were sitting there just they kind of bit into that, watching that. 
and we were kind of bored, so we were just walking around the plane and going back to our seats, and Noel had fallen asleep, and I was just rambling up and down, and then I came back down, and I fell asleep, and then we kind of just landed then in, in America. When the plane landed at John F. Kennedy Airport and taxied over to where you got off the plane, the doors opened and everyone just started getting off and we kind of just milled in with the crowd getting off the plane. There was like a kind of a security thing there again where they look for your passport and things like that. They stopped us and they kind of asked, you know, where's your passport, where's your papers and things like that and we just told them the same thing like oh yeah uh, ma'am's because we were kind of pretty much at this stage up near the front of the people so we just says oh yeah we pointed kind of in a backwards direction oh yeah ma'am's coming with the papers now and kind of when they weren't looking and they were dealing with other people we were kind of like just ducked under the they were kind of in like little security boxes with glass on them and they had kind of wood kind of half up if you, if you like about three feet up and we kind of just ducked down and ducked under and went. And once we got past them, like we were out into the, you know, the centre of the airport. We had kind of looking around, just walking around the airport. It was so big, huge. We were fascinated by everything, all the different people. Like, because like at this stage in Ireland, there wasn't that many black people or different like nationalities and that and, and like in the middle of John F. Kennedy Airport in 1985 you have all different kind of people so we were just totally fascinated and everyone is so tall and you know everything is just bigger and so we were walking around the airport for nearly two three hours just, just looking at everything and fascinated by everything before we even ventured outside the airport. They had them um, telly things and the seats things again. Glenda Prentice, come on down! Your next contestant on the price is right! He's sitting there looking at them for about an hour. We had the backpack with the stuff that we had stolen in uh, Heathrow and things like that. And we were wondering, like, well, if we sell this, who who can we sell this to, to get some money or whatever? The actual retail price is $1,570. Kathleen, you win. We kind of had decided, like, we'll go into the town, as we as we called it, like, because over here it's called, like, town. You go into town, you go into Dublin city centre. But we weren't thinking, like, this big New York city. We, we weren't thinking on that scale. So now, you have two Irish schoolboys in the middle of JFK Airport, one age 10, one age 13.
Keith was supposed to go in for his dinner in Darndale on a Thursday afternoon. Instead, he and Noel bunked off on the dart. They stayed on as far as Dunleary Ferryport. They sneaked onto a ferry bound for England. Got a train to London. Got the tube to Heathrow Airport. And blagged their way onto a New York-bound jumbo jet. All this they did with a bit of boyish charm, cunning and the odd few words. They were ready to take on Manhattan, but it was not to be, for it was the few words that would let them down. We had seen this person in, in a uniform who we thought was a security guard, and so we walked we walked up to him and anyway, not realising that he was a policeman, and asked him, like, hey, mister, how do you get into town? And he kind of looked at us a bit strange, and he kind of says, who are you guys with? And we just says, uh, well, we're our mum and dad, you know? And he says, where is your parents? And at that stage, I think it dawned on us that, like, oh, like, what we had to do, and, like, we kind of got afraid then, like, we're after being travelling on a plane for so many hours, we're, we're, like, thousands of miles away from home. And we kind of just said to him, look, at, we're not with anyone. We're on our own, and he says we're at the bonking on the plane, and he didn't understand what we, what we were meaning. He he just says, "Hang on, guys, for a minute," and he got on his radio, his walkie-talkie, and a police car just pulled up then, and he put us in the back and brought us to the, I think it was the 15th precinct or something like that. brought us there and we were kind of celebrities uh, you know when we got there it was kind of look at these two guys like they're with no one and they they says that they they're at the stowaway and on a plane and that's when we first heard the word stowaway because we had never heard of that word before or anything we were with the guards so we kind of knew we were safe if you know what i mean and that they'd kind of organized some way of getting us home like although Nobody had said that to us or anything like that. They had just kind of asked us questions of what we had done and how we had done it and things like that. And we just decided among, amongst the two of us that we'll tell the truth and we'll tell them everything because like, we just wanted to go home as quickly as possible at this stage. The fact that Keith and Noel decided to fess up and cooperate didn't mean they still weren't going to have fun. They had us in a room and... In it, we're at a desk and there was a police officer sitting where he was asking us questions and every so every couple of minutes there was detectives coming in and, you know, sitting down and laughing and joking with us and, like, at one particular one detective came in and he had a gun on the side of him and I was fascinated by this and I, I asked him, you know, is that a gun you have? And he says, yeah. And I says, can I hold it, you know? And he says, yeah. And he took out this big thing, like, that's wooden well brown brown wooden handle and then steel and I had the 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 barrel on a thing. Well he took he had actually he had actually took the bullets out onto his hand first and then clipped the 
the barrel back up and handed it to me then and my hand kind of jerked it in a downwards motion, you know, like with the weight of it. And I was kind of holding it and pointing it around. I pointed it at my friend all and bang, you know, like that. And messing and pointed it at them. And he just took it back at me and started laughing and saying, you guys are crazy and all, like saying to us, like, you know. The stowaway boys' arrival at the police station was entertaining until they said what airline they had arrived on. When we told them the airline that we had come on was an Air India plane, this is a, like a security issue because like, one of their planes had been blown up out of the sky or whatever like that, so like, they were literally like going mad, you know? They decided that they wanted to investigate this like properly and see how we had done it because it was getting a bit serious at that stage. Like, the kind of the laughing had stopped and it was more of a kind of security reason and like Jesus how did how are these guys have to do this and you know what I mean like it was kind of they were thinking more on the lines of terrorists and things like that like you guys could have having bombs or anything which is and you've done this like this is very important that you show us how you've done this and how you've managed to get through this put us in a hotel in a penthouse suite with um, five security guards overnight and gave us BLTs and chips and everything. Fed us like lords, like we loved it. At first they had us handcuffed to the bed and like we kind of, I kept slipping my hand out of the handcuffs because I had only tiny little hands and they were getting annoyed by that so they ended up just taking the handcuffs off us and just letting us sit on the beds and whatever. They wouldn't let us go outside the room, they let us watch any telly we wanted. We still had the bits of jewellery and the things of that and we had been thinking like because we had no money what we were going to do with this. When we were in the police precinct we had asked a few of the detectives and that who had as I said shown us the gun and that what their money had looked like. Now we kind of knew what dollars looked like but we were kind of being cute and like kind of playing dumb and whatever and when they were taking out like a dollar or ten dollars and showing us that we were looking at it like saying oh Jesus look at that can I have that and all and a few of them had given us no yeah yeah go on like and we had like about 70 or 80 dollars at the time and we just as we kind of got talking to the security detail I took some of the jewellery out the little haversack thing that we had and I was looking at it and they were looking they were looking at it and saying where'd you guys get that and all and we asked them, do they want to buy it? And, like, someone, they bought some of offers, you know? And we asked, like, like who was it for? And they said they were going to give it to the hookers over there. When they t told us in detail, like, prostitutes or whatever, like, we were, <laughs> well, here. We didn't care. We were just getting, we were selling it. They were giving us money. And so we hadn't a penny going over. And, like, coming home, like, we'd, we'd two or three hundred dollars. The boys may have been living like lords, but back in Ireland... The boy's parents were frantic. My mum, she got a knock on the door and she had reported me missing, obviously, like, and because um, we were gone at this stage, we were gone for three or four days and it was quite serious, like, she was totally worried, sick and that. But she told us that she just got a knock on the door, like, in the evening and it was a policeman from Coolock and he says, Miss Bourne, yes, you have a son, Keith Bourne, yeah. 
well, we found him, and she says, oh, that's great, and he says, we found him in JFK Airport, and my mum says, oh, great, the airport, he's only in the airport, and she says, what airport? JFK Airport, where, where is that? And he says, America, and she says, what, America? What the hell is King doing in America? Dynasty. Joe. The following day, they kind of woke us up, gave us some breakfast and that. This week on Good Morning America. Weekdays at five on Channel Thirty. And um, brought us to the airport. When we got to the airport, they kind of had some part of a shutdown kind of thing. And they brought us right up to where the plane had come in. And we showed them which corridor, because we remembered which corridor we had come through and come down. And showed them, like, like we got off the plane here. And we walked down here and we told them when we got to the immigration kind of thing, how we got through that and, like, what we, what we had told the immigration guy and ducked under the thing, like, and, like, he was busy. It wasn't his kind of fault, you know, like, because we knew he'd kind of probably get into trouble or something like that, you know? So, like, we showed him every way that we went and everything and then told him we were in the airport for two or three hours later after that. They brought us back to the hotel and there was reporters trying to get up to the room to see us and things like that. They actually kept us in New York for about two days. We went back later on that evening and we had to go back over what we had told them earlier on that day, go through the whole thing again and, you know, because the airport was so big and we had to show them every way, they wanted to get everything right down to detail and we showed them all that and then, like, we were told them we were going home then the next day. The security guys, two of them, brought us out in a car. Brought us to the Empire State Building and bought us a monument, little tourist kind of thing, if you like, of the little square piece of marble with the Empire State Building on it. We had flags with I Love New York on it. Banners, I love New York, things, they bought us things like that and all and gave us that. They brought us back to the airport. Give your attention our earliest passengers. At this time, we'd like to welcome all remaining passengers to board. We were on an Aer Lingus plane, we were safe, you know. We, we knew then we, we were going home. We were going to meet our parents. This is Morning Ireland. It's a quarter past eight. The news headlines. Two Dublin boys who stowed away on an Air India flight from London to New York are due back home shortly. Gander, Shamrock 11, Despite feeling safe and looking forward to meeting their parents, Keith and Noel decided they'd played along with the authorities for long enough. 
So you're kind of thinking then, oh, my mom's going to kill me and my dad's going to kill me and we're thinking, geez, what are we going to say? And, you know, like, what's going to happen? Like, who's going to be there when we get off the plane? And because we are so worried, like, what's mom and dad going to do? We're going to get killed. Like, Jesus, look what we're at to do. We says, like, we kind of found out on the plane that we stopped off at Shannon on the way. When we heard that, we kind of, we says, right, we'll, we'll jump off at Shannon and then, like, we'll make our way home. Nobody will know, and then we'll just make our way home quietly, and, you know, everyone will forget about it, and we'll just go home, and, you know, everything will be all right, you know? And I don't know, but I think they drugged us or something on the plane, because we, we got a drink about a half an hour before we arrived in Shannon, and it just totally knocked the two of us out. The two of us fell asleep. headlines. Two Dublin boys who stowed away on an Air India flight from London to New York have arrived home. And when we woke up, like, the police were standing beside us. Everyone else had gone off the plane and, like, we had to come down the stairs and walk across the runway and they brought us into the security area and Kulak Gardaí were waiting there for us and they took, they took control of us then. And the details now from Anne Doyle. Two Dublin boys who stowed away on an Air India flight from London to New York at the weekend are now back home, none the worse for their adventure and a little richer. The boys, 13-year-old Noel Murray and 10-year-old Keith Byrne, are both from the Dublin suburb of Darndale. They were discovered by New York police on Saturday standing on a pavement near the airport terminal. They first told police they had lost their tickets and their mothers had their passports. But the police contacted Garthi in Dublin and found they had been missing from home for several days. Earlier last week... There was a, a guard from Kulak who, who knew us quite well. We used to put him through like a lot of bother kind of thing, you know. And he was there and when he seen us, he says, you know what, he's two feckers, you know. He says, what, is, what have you got up to now? And he kind of grabbed us and took... And there was another guard with him and they just thrown us into the back of a squad car. New York police had given them money with which they bought souvenirs for their families and still had a few cents left over. It was all photographers and all snapping photographs and everything else and we were kind of waving out the window and rolled down the window and out with the flags and he was like, get them windows up and you don't be way, who just think is hard and all celebrities and you know all this and we were just having grey crack, you know, like. Our reporter Porygokira was there and spoke to a somewhat subdued young Keith Byrne and to his parents. The boys' first attempt to get to Britain on the Hollyhead ferry last Thursday failed and they were sent back to Dublin then. But, as Keith explains, they were not to be put off. We went back on the boat to uh, Hollyhead again. I got the train to London, the plane to New York. Was it hard to get out to the airport in London? No. How did you do that? By train and bus. Did you have tickets? We paid on the bus, but not on the train. So when you got to the airport, did you know what you wanted to do? No, not really. And why did you pick on New York? Did you want to go to New York? No, we just asked the man where was the plane going. He says New York, so we just got on the plane. Was there many people at the gate checking for tickets and that? Yeah, good for you. And did any of them stop you? Yeah, but we just says we must come with the tickets. We must come with the tickets. And they believe that? Yeah. So when you got on the plane then, did somebody ask you for a ticket there? No. 
No. And was it a long journey or did you enjoy it? Yeah. And were you hungry? Did you get anything to eat? Yeah. They, they were serving me things on the plane. And did you eat them? No. What, what, what did they give you? Uh, curry stuff. Curry and rice. So when you got to New York then, did you walk off the plane with the other people? Yeah. And what were you hoping to do? Did you want to get into bus into town? My friend did. Did we ask the policeman where, what, what, what way is it into town? And he just asked us what was our name. We got tickets for being over there. And he just, and we said no, he brought us off to the police station. My mum just and dad just turned their arms around me like I was I was expecting to be get killed, you know, but my mum was just in floods of tears and my dad was they were just like so happy to see us. I don't think I could have done any more than putting him down there, letting him home on the holidays. He was told not to move out, his dinner was on, a half one on Thursday, and when I looked out again Keith was gone. They apparently had tried to get out of Ireland twice last week. Are you afraid that they, they might do this again? Yes. That's all I was worried, that once they had tight security on them this morning when he got to Dublin. Did they ring you from England or did they contact you? No, America did. Sergeant Harrison, he was terrible nice. He asked me, did I love him? Did I want him home? And when I last seen him and I told him since Thursday. Well, I think they might have been expecting that he would be caught. But it's just when they weren't caught. Lieutenant Richard Richards of the New York Port Authority Police at JFK Airport has been telling us about the two boys' journey. One of the things that they wanted to see was some of the sites here in New York. Um, the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building was one that they mentioned, and we also have some tall towers down at the foot of Manhattan Island here. Um, the World Trade Center. So they had an itinerary planned out? Well, yeah, I think that they uh, kind of were an adventuresome uh, twosome, and they were certainly um, uh, prepared for uh, their, uh, their itinerary and their journey. You think they might try it again? I don't know. I wouldn't say try it again. No, I think he's... Um learned his lesson. Well, hopefully he has this time. But for now, he's home to stay. He's home, thank God. That's all I want. Well, do you find it amazing that uh, they managed to make it all the way to Kennedy? Well, they're quite enterprising young people. Um, they appear uh, in the American vernacular to be what we consider streetwise. I think that it, perhaps if they continue this, they uh, someday will be the head of some large corporation. Keith or Noel didn't become CEOs. Me and Noel split up around 16. I just kind of stayed with my mates and he went on and done whatever he was doing, you know. But for Keith, he did just as well as anyone during the boom time before losing his job in the building trade. Keith's a family man, loves his kids, and it's clear he and his partner plan to raise them right. When they're out playing in the garden, he keeps a close eye on them and they always come in for their dinner. I don't think there'd be any chance that you'd get away with it now, nowadays with everything that's going on with the planes and the, the security that they have nowadays, you know, like, there'd be no way you'd get away with it now, or, you know, they wouldn't fall for that old trick, or my mum's coming behind me, you know, like, they'd be, they'd be too worried for that, you know, like...
Nowadays, I don't talk about it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bring it up in conversation. But like, if it's brought up in conversation or whatever, like I'll talk a little bit about it. Kind of, you know, it's it's a happy like experience or a happy memory. You know, like it's not a sad memory or anything. Like, you know. I still haven't lost that adventurous nature, you know, like I love travelling in different places and me and my partner would go, go off and on drives, we'd drive down to Kilkenny and Carlow still and the week and things like that, you know, and I'd bring the kids off and walk to them. Don't Go Far, Dinner's Almost Ready was produced by Ronan Kelly and Paul Russell for RTE Radio Ireland. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Support for ReSound comes from Mark Realty, providing its commercial real estate tenants with personal service and office buildings throughout the Chicago Loop and suburbs. More information about Mark Realty services is available at markrealty.com. I'm packing up. I have my Boy Scout canteen. I think I took a flashlight, um, a pair of binoculars. I remember my dad sitting in like the easy chair reading the paper. He barely folded down the corner of the paper and said, good luck out there. I know what we'll do. We'll walk to, to where I play Little League. And we and we took a bunch of my dad's change, and we were like, we're gonna like buy candy, and provisions, and then we also last minute decided to get my bring my dog too, who was like sort of an overweight beagle. I don't remember having ever wanting to run away as a kid, uh, but my little sister, I definitely have. I, I remember, you know, she would want to run away, and uh, she would pack up her bag. <laughs> And she would say, I'm leaving. But uh, she is in college now, so she's away. She finally got away. Every parent knows, eventually, children leave you. Usually when they reach adulthood. But sometimes this natural order of things gets rearranged, and the separation comes much earlier, as was the case with this Canadian family. One day the phone rang. Faith and fate collided, and a call from India changed their lives forever. Here's very precious thing. The word Rinpoche is going to come up a lot in the next few minutes. So let me tell you what it means. Uh, Rinpoche means uh, it's a very precious thing, something, you know, like so any of our high lama, we call them, we don't call them lama, you know, we call them Rinpoche. It's someone important. The precious ones, something like that. And more than that, the reincarnated lamas. And um, Punsak would know, since now he can count a pretty high-ranking Rinpoche in his family. Here's what happened. Now, Punsak's extended family in India, they're quite religious. They were pretty close to a senior Rinpoche there. They took his teachings to heart. They followed his advice. One night, here in Toronto, Punsak's wife, Sonam, had a dream. And in that dream, she was visited by that very same Rinpoche. She was saying the Rinpoche gave her something to eat something green, and the dream was very pleasant. That's what she, she said. Around the same time that Sonam has that dream, the Rinpoche, well, he actually dies. On that day, very day. And not long after that... We found that she was pregnant. 
He's named Gonpo, and he's born in 2001. Like it was C-section and she was, I think it was too much in pain at that time. And the baby cried and then he, they said, doctors say it's boy and you know, like everything is good. Religious leaders predicted the child would be special. All Punsak really remembers is how adorable his son was. You know, like a very cute, from the very beginning, he was, he will not cry much, you know, like he will just calm every time. Was there a first moment that you remember where you thought, Gongpo was special. There was something about Gongpo that made you look at him in a special way. We never thought in those terms, but I know one of my friends, he used to do some kind of astrology. So he said, okay, give me the details about your son, you know. And I gave all the details. Then he said, uh, your son's going to be a very learned man, and uh, the parents will be known by his name. And that's what he said. How did you take that? At, at that and I thought, I thought, you know, like maybe he'll become like a writer or some doctor or something, you know. The idea Punsak might have fathered a reincarnated lama, a Rinpoche, didn't exactly cross his mind. So then we forgot everything for four or five years. So when I was 12, I came to know that he was a reincarnation. This is Gompo's big sister, Tenzin Pomo. And I was pretty surprised because uh, when he was around, I loved him as a brother, but he would, he would get really annoying sometimes. Typical brother-sister stuff. Yeah, pretty much. So the monks or the Rinpoches tasked with finding and confirming reincarnates, they do so using a combination of ancient custom, some astrological math. I don't know how they work it, actually. They found that my son was the one, so... By the one, he means his son, Gonpo, was identified as the reincarnated Lama that had known the family in India. The Rinpoche, who had died and appeared to Sonam in a dream. That incredible announcement came rather mundanely. The phone came from my in-laws because all the monks and everyone, they came with, uh, I don't know, some kind of offering to uh, my in-laws' home, and they said the Rinpoche has recognized. I was kind of speechless, you know. Is this true or, you know, like... Uh, yeah, but then when I found out about it, I was so sad, and yeah. Imagine finding out one day that your son, your baby brother, is not who you think he is. He's someone greater than all of you. And he's no longer yours. He's everyone's. And he has to move away. By the end of 2005, Gungpo had been ordained as a monk. The family witnessed the transformation in India. That was a very special day because we were just going up to that monastery and they found that we arrived the day we arrived there's you're seeing rainbows and those kind of thing it was a clear sky but they're still they're saying you know like there were rainbows so and uh, there was a whole process his head was shaped and he was ordained and he was offered the the rob and by then he also had been given a new name Jigme Tenzin Gurme Rinpoche, now a reincarnated lama, now reunited with his brothers in a Tibetan monastery 
in India. You know, the day we got there at the monastery, and uh, he just went with the monks. You know, like he just mixed up right away. And uh, was that a strange moment? Yeah, I was thinking. You know, like it was a pretty good sign. You know, like uh, that uh, it's going to be easy for him. It took a couple years back in Canada to sort out the paperwork. The young Rinpoche finished first grade. Then it was time to send him to India for good. Sonam, mom, would chaperone her own seven-year-old son to the monastery. That day was a pretty difficult day for me, actually, because at the airport, <clears throat> so now he was finally leaving, and uh, uh, because he was scared, right? So I want to stay now. You know, he was saying like that. Then, then my wife um, advised him. You know, like. Uh, you have been chosen, and you know everything that has been done. Then he said, "Okay." Then he said, "Okay, so let's go." I was uh, pretty sad, but my daughter she cried a lot on that day. I don't know. I didn't cry a lot at the airport, but then when I came home, you know, like it was really like uh, some kind of empty here. You know, it was just silence. It was just empty. And then I went to my room, I jumped on the bed and I started crying. But then, you know, like we already made the decision, so... It wouldn't like go away. I was thinking, oh my God, if I wished he... I wanted to talk to him so bad. Reincarnation is an important part of Tibetan Buddhism. And so when a Rinpoche is found, Buddhist families must balance this mix of overwhelming joy with overwhelming sorrow. As a Tibetan, you know, like it's our culture, and I feel very honored, you know, like to have my son uh, become a Rinpoche. But at the other side, is also there because um, departing away from him. So that's being my selfish, actually. So that's a different thing. <laughs> so why do you think that, selfish? I don't. Know, that's the attachment. That's the, the the most difficult part. That's what we, you know, like in our religion also. That's the attachment that causes the biggest pain uh, in human life. You know, so to overcome that, that was a little bit uh, the, the difficult. You do get a lot of respect from people, like from public, and then maybe who knows he'll reincarnate again. Do you believe that he's the reincarnation? Um. I actually don't believe in these kind of things, but it's just the, the things that we figured out when we went to India, it was just, it was kind of surprising. And then, yeah, after that, I think. Do you accept why this has happened to your family? Yeah, I do. I have to. You have to. Very Precious Thing was produced by Dominic Girard for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Day 6. We had to know how things were going for the new llama and his family, so we called Dominic. Hey, Dominic. Hi, Gwen. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. Let's just start with the basics. Yeah. Um, do you know how our protagonist, uh, formerly known as Gunpo, is doing at the monastery? Yeah, he's doing really well, actually. Um He's still there, of course. He's 10 years old now, and he's kind of nonstop studying. Um, I think he gets, like, maybe a week off a year to take a break. 
So it's, I guess, kind of intense work, but he seems to be enjoying it, according to his father. Mm -hmm. He had a great summer, though. Um, his family spent a lot of time up there, actually. He had, for the first time in years, like some significant time off, and he spent it with his sister, and his parents were there, too. Is there a difference? I mean, are there many reincarnated llamas, or or is it just one? Is it this the the llama? Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a misconception. I think we many of us who don't follow the faith have is we believe, we hear about the Dalai Lama and it's like okay, so the Buddhist faith has this this boss at the top of the chain, right? And he's he's the Dalai Lama, and that's it. And I'll. I'll all bow into the Dalai Lama. That's that's not quite at all accurate. Lamas are basically um, revered people in in the Buddhist faith, and there are, there are many, many, many of them. How much of what's going on do you think he understands completely? He's ten now, so he's you know he's a bit more aware of life around him, and it's not that he misses Canada so much, but he knows that someday he's going to return to it. This is just the studying phase of his life, and so. Uh, apparently he embraces it, he's very comfortable there, and he just knows that at some point part of that, that element of his life will end and he will continue with his life, perhaps back in Canada, maybe he'll stay out there, I don't know. But uh, mm -hmm. I do get the sense that um, he's having a good time and learning a lot. And so, uh, just I mean, I'm just curious, so it, it, does he have a choice in the matter? The family really believes in their faith. They believe that to be identified as a reincarnated lama is the one of the ultimate things that your faith can do for you and for for the faith itself and so does he have a choice is it's a bit hard to parse that question from that context because i get the impression that it's not really about choice it's about kind of pure honor you know what i mean and all evidence at least at this level, seems to suggest that it's just he's just really enjoying it. So that may be his choice, you know? Dominic Girard is the producer of Very Precious Thing from the CBC's Day Six. We, I think, skulked around the, the creek near our house, through the woods, you know, did our normal daily playtime. And then I think I, you know, I got a little hungry. And, uh, you know, when you're a seven-year-old boy and it's a little late in the afternoon and it's snack time, you know, and you don't have any cash and any wheels, you're a little limited. So I think I went back hat in hand. At that point, it was kind of like I wasn't really mad at my dad anymore. I wasn't, I was feeling fine about the world. Like, I had, like, lost interest in running away. And it had gotten late, and so we... Like, well, let's just go back home. And anyway, so I ended up going back home because everything blows over, you know, eventually. I got about halfway down the block. I got scared and sad, turned back around and came home. So I used to, when I was a kid, try to run away, you know, sort of torture my parents. I'd never be there again and they'd be so sad. Um, but when I went away to college, I had this thing where I got really nostalgic and sort of lonely on occasion and I would break back into the house. So I would drive back from college at like two in the morning, creep into the house because it's a really creepy turn of the century farmhouse, and then um, eat a ham sandwich <laughs> with raspberry jam and um, lettuce and stuff and just like be in the kitchen. 
ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support also comes from Half Acre Beer Company, crafting beer in Chicago's North Center since 2007, featuring their brand new tap room and offering growlers to go from their brewery shop. Information on tours, brewery lore, and Half Acre gear at halfacrebeer.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.